Hello and welcome to Strip Back the Pages. In this episode, my guest Jess Haynes and I will delve into the legend that is Sherlock Holmes. Welcome to the Strip Back the Pages podcast. I'm NJ and I'm really looking forward to exploring the heart of storytelling with you. So why are stories so important? What do they do and what drives authors to write them in the first place? As we delve into the intricacies of this worldwide phenomenon, I will also share my personal experiences, the highs and lows of writing and publishing, my successes and failures. Join with me as I, as we, journey towards an unwritten future. So Jess, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Or rather, it's great to be here because obviously we're recording at Jess's place. And we are surrounded by the most gorgeous guinea pigs. Tell me more. Yep, there's, I think, about 45 or 46 at the minute. Yeah. Um, You might be able to hear some of them rattling away in the background and the occasional squeak. A lot of them are asleep at the minute because it's sunny. Mm -hmm. We've got a few babies do any time. They could be going topside of 50 soon. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Got one there, sound asleep, eyes shut. Now who's who's that? What's what's the ginger and white one there? That's that's Chewbacca. Ah, named well, of, named of course after Star Wars. Oh yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. Well, he's got the wild, fluffy hair, and also he chews everything. Yeah. Um, the name just seemed appropriate. It sounds very suitable to me. And then over the other side, we've got a little guy called Han Solo. Fantastic. So you're definitely a Star Wars fan then? Uh, yeah, just a bit. Just a bit. Yeah. Hans, it's a bit of a double entendre because he was the only baby that Candy ever had. Right. So he's Hans Solo because he's the only singular baby that from Candy Yeah. ever. And I just thought it's a good name. It's a very good name. <laughs> Just out of interest, what about uh, Star Trek? Are you a big Trekkie as well? Not so much. No, not so no. Much. I mean, I must admit, I am. But um, I mean, Star Wars. It, I think, it revolutionised everything. We used to watch Star Trek in the old days when it was on television. Yeah. What about Next Generation? Which I must admit is my favourite. Very occasionally. Mm. I've got to ask you the same question I asked Steph, who was on the show two weeks ago. Uh, she'll be doing a few book reviews for us. Mm-hmm. And we were discussing the difference between films and books. Do you prefer reading the book as opposed to watching the film, or are, are, you, are you the other way around? I like reading the books because if you've got a good imagination, what I found, well, a bit of an explanation. Having struggled a little bit with my reading and writing, right, which was like a type of dyslexia, yeah, um, I found that if I wasn't careful, I could read the book too quickly and not entirely grasp the story. Mm-hmm. So what I eventually got the hang of doing was basically carrying a little bookmark about the width of the page and slowly slide it down the page one line at a time Right. so that I read slower and more thoroughly. But then often I, when I'd read a paragraph or two, I would literally sit and play the scene back in my mind so you, know, you could imagine what was going on and whatever mm. else. And I found once I'd got the hang of reading books slower, that it was much, much better. Some of the books where you got a really good description of the background, what was going on, people doing things, it was far better than the film in a way. 
Yeah. Because often the film leaves nothing to the imagination and preempts what you think or imagine people to look like. Mm. And of course, you film fans out there, this isn't knocking films, it's comparing the two. I mean, you know, I'm sure you do, Jess, we love a great film. But out of the two, it's the book that wins. At least that's what seems to be coming across. Like with Watership Down, I was halfway through reading the book when we went to see the film. Yeah. And they're not quite the same. Yeah. Oh, there's always differences. Yeah. But again, they've got to condense. And what would you say average book? Seven and a half, eight hour read as an average? And sometimes even more. Yeah. And they've got to condense it down by picking out the bits that are interesting, but also they've got to keep the continuity mm. of the story. Yeah. Which is not an easy job. No. So you've either got to jump bits and try and explain it or shorten scenes. Some films were just written as films and, that you know, like, um, you know, action movies. Yeah. But, I mean, even where they, if you read the history of that particular battle, it doesn't compare. No. Who's, who's rattling away? Oh, it's one of the babies chewing something. Number six, right-hand side. <laughs> Going back to the guinea pigs, um, you've done a show recently, haven't you? Yep. Was it you won five firsts? Uh, five firsts, six seconds, three thirds. Which is brilliant. What I'll do, by the way, um, I'll take a few photos of some of the guinea pigs and they'll go on my Twitter. So, yeah, if anyone's interested in having a look, they'll be, I'm sure that'd be okay, Jess. Take a yeah, few that's, pictures. Yeah, that's and, fine, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah some, of, some of them are... I mean, what what I found particularly um, pleasing about the show, on one category we did a one two three, which is fairly rare. Yeah. Most people, if they can get a one first or a second, they'd think they're doing well. But um, in the national, which is basically like the the big cavy club for the country, um, I think I am now too far ahead on the points. Right. For anybody to catch me. Good for you. So. Yeah. And for any people out there who just adore their guinea pigs, can they get them from you? Yeah. Yeah. So if you live in the UK and you want a guinea pig, let me know and I'll forward that on to Jess. So Jess, I understand you are a Sherlock Holmes super fan. Yeah, just a bit. Just a bit. So how many books have you read? I think most of them. I mean, I knew, I knew you were a super fan, but I didn't know you'd read, you know, practically all the books. Well, my brother used to buy them, and when he'd read them, he'd just basically leave them on the bedroom floor. Yeah. And I'd pick them up and um, read them through, and I also, at one point, bought even Moriarty books. Right. read quite a few of them. So, out of all those Sherlock Holmes books, which one's your favourite? difficult to say they've all got their own merits <laughs> I'd, 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 pro I'd probably be cheeky and say a, one of the collections <laughs> uh, no do you know what you've just done merits yeah oh did i have my leg pulled at school yeah yeah when i was when i was at Tewkesbury abbey um obviously it was a choir school one one of the what, what was the hymn? I can't remember that. But the last the, <laughs> the last the last verse was on a glory, might, and merit. It was just oh boy, everyone just looked across at me and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you were saying. Yes. Yeah, so to be quite honest, I don't know which book would be the one to choose. 
it's usually the one I'm reading at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, as, as you know, Jess, four novels and 56 short stories were written in total. A Study in Scarlet and The Sign of the Four was published in 1887 and 1890, respectively, followed by The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, a book of 12 short stories, first published in the 12 monthly issues of the, of the Strand magazine between 1891 and 1892. I mean, I, well, I say I've read a few, I've listened to a few of them as audiobooks, and they are, they're all, they're as good as each other. Yeah. What fascinates me, because uh, I, I love looking into the creation process. Yeah. So, for instance, Conan Doyle based Sherlock on Dr. Joseph Bell, who was a surgeon at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh, who he met in 1877 and later worked for as a clerk. Bell was later to become a professor at the Edinburgh Medical School and, like Holmes, was noted for drawing conclusions from minute details as he spoke to and examined his patients. So he would tell his students to focus on the little differences that differentiated them. As for Dr. Watson... He was, did you know he was actually named Ormond, Ormond Sacker in the early plot outlines? I didn't, but it's kind of fascinating, that. Yeah. Then, of course, Conan Doyle settled on Dr John Watson. But the character was inspired by and partly named after one of the author's colleagues, Dr James Watson. From a writing perspective, I think we all do that. We'll create characters based on other people we know, we've heard of, or... We would like to know. Yeah. I mean, the characteristics of Sherlock, would you agree he was eccentric and appeared cold during his investigations? Yes, but I think he did that on purpose so that people wouldn't read too much into what he was... I mean, he would drop hints without putting much emotion behind it. Yeah. And if you added the emotion, it would give the plot away. Yeah, because he also came across as animated and excitable, showing his flair for showmanship. As you said, often keeping his methods and evidence hidden until the last possible second. Yeah. He was, of course, very untidy and loved playing the violin, um, owning his own Stradivarius, which, of course, is one of the most famous and expensive violins ever made. Now, I found this interesting. In The Adventure of the Cardboard Box, one of the short stories published in the Strand magazine in 1893, we find out where Holmes acquired his violin. It's said that it was worth 500 guineas, that's £155,000 in today's money, and he bought it for 45 shillings at a pawnbroker shop in London's Tottenham Court Road. Mm -hmm. As we know, and something I'm sure we all loved about him, was that Holmes was a master of disguise, yep. Yep. a very accomplished boxer and swordsman. Yes, that would quite make sense, actually. I mean, there was still a lot of use for the sword. Yeah. Boxing was mostly taken up by the lower and middle class. Right. So, Yes. Of course, he also understood anatomy, chemistry and botany and was an expert single stick player, or to you and me, a martial arts specialist who uses sticks to fight. I didn't pick up on that until I'd done my research. Well, a lot of gentlemen would... I mean, it was common for people to learn... The sciences. I mean, there was huge interest in the stars. Telescopes were available. And well, what you have to appreciate is they could see far more of the night sky than we can. Yeah. Because there were only a few hundred streetlights. So whereas we look up in the sky, it's sort of dark and most of the surrounding area is orange. 
If you ever go to somewhere like the Shetland Islands, walk out into the back of beyond, away from the handful of streetlights, and look up, the whole of the heavens is sparkling. Fascinating. There's stars upon stars upon stars. You don't appreciate until you go to somewhere back of beyond. So why is that? Light pollution. Right. Simple as that. Simple as that. If you, know, if you go out onto the east coast or the west coast in this country, in, you know, in, in England, yeah. you can see a lot of stars when you look up. But if you go to somewhere, I mean, like Alaska, where there's no streetlights, you go 50 miles out into the back of beyond and look up and you don't even believe it's dark. The whole sky is full of stars. And when the planets go over, and, you know, that would be how the Victorians saw it. Yeah. So it would be, you know, a level of fascination to learn about the heavens, to learn about the elements, to because everything was so much more visible. Mm. We've covered it with a layer of fakery. Yeah. We've got streetlights that switch off the night. We've got computers and phones that switch off emotions. I mean, how many people have a conversation face-to-face? That's very true. When Conan Doyle was around, there was no telephones. Cameras were few and far between. The news arrived on a piece of paper a day or two or a week or two after it had happened. Yeah. You know, everything around you, if you wanted to know something, you know, it was there. You, you, you know, if, if you wanted to learn about, say, the elements, you had to dig out, you had to, you had to set to and find a book. Yeah, we just Google it. <laughs> True. Okay, let's take a look at Watson. Again, typical Victorian gentleman, witty and intelligent. He's an excellent doctor and surgeon and he's very humble, loyal and dependable. And he knows he doesn't have Holmes' deductive skills, although he still attempts to solve crimes on his own with limited success. Does that come across nicely in in the novels? It comes across nicely, but I think Watson defers to Sherlock too often, you know, to to prevent taking the limelight. Yeah. I think sometimes Dr. Watson could actually just do the answers himself. Yeah. And sometimes... We don't need homes at all. But see, that, see, that's interesting. And again, this is a whole writing thing. What I love about Watson is in all but four of the stories, Watson tells the story in the first person. So Conan Doyle uh, tells the story in, in basically the voice of Watson, yeah. i.e. the first person. He becomes Holmes's biographer, recording and publishing the accounts of each case as he objected to Scotland Yard not giving his friend full credit for solving them. Now, that alone, it, it's almost creating the legend, i.e., yeah. was Sherlock Holmes actually real? Yes. And that, I think, is genius. Oh, that's very clever. You know, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier Moriarty. Yes. Who I'm sure everyone knows was Holmes's arch enemy. What listeners may not know is that Conan Doyle actually developed the character as a means to eventually kill off Holmes, which he did in the 1893 novel The Final Problem. 
As you know, Holmes and Moriarty had their last epic battle which took place on the rocky precipice at the Reichenbach Falls, Switzerland, yeah. where we were led to believe that they both fell to their deaths. Mm -hmm. Did you know that the public outcry was so huge it has never been repeated? 20,000 people cancelled their subscriptions to the Strand magazine. Yes. And the detectives' fans wore black armbands in the streets. Oh, yes. Because I thought at the time that was a bit of an overreaction. <laughs> but then when you realise how many people, because it wasn't just the subscribers, a lot of the people, I mean, it's like now, when I was a kid, we used to pass comics around between each other. Mm. And I suddenly realised it wasn't just the 20-odd thousand people who cancelled their subscription. It was probably close to a couple of million. Oh, yeah. People yeah. would... I didn't realise that people would actually buy the magazine and read it to their staff at dinner time. Right. And I'm suddenly like, uh, so one magazine would be read to, like, a couple of hundred people. Mm. And they would sit there in dead silence. So... It wasn't just 20,000 people. You, you suddenly kind of appreciate that, you know, people would have been following this like a soap opera. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, eight years later, I mean, apparently his, his mum told him off. She was not happy. But after being told about some legends of Dartmoor, Conan Doyle started writing a novel about it and rather than create a new detective for the story, decided to use Holmes set in the story two years before his untimely death. Now, The Hound of the Baskervilles was the third Sherlock Holmes novel firstly serialised in the Strand magazine between August 1901 and April 1902, before being published in book form later that year. But having appeared in print again, readers wanted more. And following a $4,000 per story offer by the New York publisher of Collier magazine, Conan Doyle penned The Adventures of the Empty House, which was published in 1903. And, of course, in that, he resurrected Holmes, saying that he hadn't died, but obviously Moriarty had fallen to his death, but Holmes hadn't. Um, he decided to fake it, and what he actually did was hang on to a rocky ledge and made his way to safety. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much we could go through. Yeah, but... it's, it's like your regular cliffhanger, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, another, a few other very interesting points. Did you know that, you know in the films, mm -hmm. so Elementary Dear Watson, it's said so many times in the films, but it never appeared once in any of the Conan Doyle books. No. Just the word elementary. Yes. <laughs> it's a bit like Star Trek, beam me up Scotty. <laughs> it was never once said. Yeah. Here's another thing. You know the infamous Deerstalker? I don't think it was ever mentioned in it the It wasn't. Books. It wasn't. But it's in, it's in all the films. Didn't he, didn't he wear a bowler hat in, in the books? I believe he did. Yeah. And I don't think a deer stalker would have been worn in the Victorian times anyway. I think that was I think that was a nineteen twenties piece of attire. Right. Yeah, how did the Baskervilles? Were there any big changes from the book to the film? I think there were a few, weren't there? I mean the hand of the Baskervilles has been I think three films of it. Yeah. So it's varied over each, hasn't it? I mean, let's be realistic. Mm. The ones I've seen were the black and white films starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to where Holmes and Watson lived. 221 Baker Street was a flat owned by Mrs Hudson who lived downstairs in a large city room in which Holmes would write and play his violin. 
painted on the walls, a yellow smiley face with its smiling mouth made of bullet holes. That was all in the book, wasn't it, on the books? Mm -hmm. Now, did you know that 221B didn't exist? Never has existed. Now, doesn't it exist now? No. Right, okay, because... But there is a Sherlock Holmes museum. Yes, yes, I know. Because what I found out was the last number in Baker Street was 85 until 1930. And the reason Conan Doyle went for 221B was he wanted to keep the address fictitious so no one living in a suggested address could receive unwanted mail. Exactly. And I've done a similar thing myself with my own stories, deliberately creating a fictitious... But people would write to 221B and the post office did actually have a letter bag at the local post office for all the letters to be put into. Jess, if you had to pick just one character trait of Sherlock Holmes or a scene from one of the stories that truly inspired you, what would it be? I think it would have been the the way he could put things together. Yeah. Yeah, the sometimes I miss things. Yeah, I'm not I'm not paying enough attention, but the way Sherlock does it he he never misses a thing. Mm, yeah. And that would be a really great thing to be able to do. You know, never miss a trick. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So considering everything we've discussed, would you say that the Sherlock Holmes stories are timeless? And here's the crunch question, why? I think some of it is because it was seen as a golden time. I mean, literally... You know, the world was newly opened up. I mean, mm. you know, I like that. You you could travel. You could you you know, for thousands of years you stayed where you lived, with the exception of a handful of people. And all of a sudden, you could travel. You know, you'd got this guy who could travel the country. Yeah. You know, the known world, and do things. Yeah. And it inspired people. You know. The rush of people down to Dartmoor after one of the books. Yes, yeah. It was a scene. You know, people actually went out and tried to identify the place. Yeah. And the railway companies would run excursions and holidays. And they would actually pay people to be Sherlock Holmes at the other end. To bring it all to life, basically. Yes. I mean, it was the... And and that is the art of the of the author to bring their story to life. Yes. And Conan Doyle did it. Yeah. Because again, as I said earlier, he could describe the scenery really well, make people want to visit it. Yeah. So let's discuss the story's longevity. Sherlock has been popular for well over hundred and twenty years now. What are your thoughts? Why why has it been so successful? Why so many years later do people still read it, watch the films? Because if you look at, carefully at the films, they feature really nice landscapes. Yeah. Ideal lifestyles. Yeah. I mean, time and time again, I mean, thinking back, you've got racehorse owners, you've got Lords of the Manors, you've got a way of life that's now pretty much gone and people hanker after and as you know a simpler way of traveling getting on a train and i remember sherlock saying we are traveling at 53 and a half miles an hour on one train and you know 
just basically the basics of X, how he'd work that out. And the train now would be doing like 150 miles an hour and you'd be expected to be, when you get to the other end, you're off in a flash. And the tea, that back then it came in real pottery cups with saucers. Yeah. Now you get this little plastic thing. And I think to some extent people would like to slow down and mm. just believe in that non-existent world. Do you know that's interesting because... I mean, you think back to lots of the old Victorian films, I mean, I often wonder what would it be like to live in those times with gaslighting and paraffin lighting, was it? Yeah. In those days? I mean, this house you're in now. Yeah. It was the first house on this street to have electric. Really? But it wasn't for lighting. It was to run the bakery. The lights were gas. Yeah. The cooker's were gas. The bakery was coal-powered. Ah. This room we're sat in now would have originally had a fireplace yeah. and a gaslight. Well, I can see the fireplace. Yeah, well, that, that's not original, but it's similar in size to the original. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the gaslight, the pipe would have run up between the windows, across the ceiling... And where the ceiling rose is now, you'd have had a single gas light. Right. So how old is the house? When was the house built? 1899. Right, so it's well and truly Victorian. Yes. But on the side of the house, you'll see there's a little triangle. Yeah. That says 1903. Okay. Now, people think, oh, that's when the house was built. But the triangle gives it away. Because many guilds had triangular badges with their crests on. Right. So 1903 was when the guy who was here as a baker became a master of the Baker's Guild and he was given literally a lump of stone with a brass crest on it with the Baker's Guild. And then somebody would have literally come along with a knife and a saw, removed brickwork above the door and carefully set it in the brass, unfortunately, was removed right. during the Second World War, which was a shame. Yeah. But the piece of stone is still there with the date on. That's really interesting. Now, what about clothing accessories worn or carried in Victorian times? Didn't the upper and middle class gentlemen regularly wear top hats and carry canes, walking sticks or umbrellas? But then was that either as a fashion statement or to house a concealed weapon? Both. Mm. It was both. Depending on where you were and what you were doing, and if you were out in the country, you would carry a stick. Yes. If you're in a city, it would be quite reasonable to carry an umbrella or a walking stick during the day, but a pseudo-weapon during the evening or night. Right, makes sense. There were a surprise... I mean, most gentlemen had a surprising number of sticks and umbrellas and something for every occasion. Yeah, yeah. Now, considering Victorian England, we haven't even started to scratch the surface yet. So, Jess, would you be willing to come back on the show and carry on where we left off? Yes. It might fit in rather nicely with a book idea I've got for Christmas, written by an author who again lived in Victorian times. But obviously we've been discussing Sherlock Holmes and we'd better say a few words about the author. He was, of course, Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle, 
Born in Edinburgh on the 22nd of May 1859 and lived until the 7th of July 1930 when he sadly died of a heart attack aged 71. Uh, he was a British author and physician and created Sherlock Holmes in 1887. He was married twice and had five children. Mm. And apparently he was also a volunteer doctor in the Boer War and knighted as a result. Uh, I do believe Winston Churchill was involved in that war as well. Yeah. And, of course, Conan Doyle was also very keen in the paranormal. Yes. And uh, became a spiritualist, lecturing and writing a number of books on the subject. And he was a friend of Harry Houdini. Mm. Yes. So, yeah, well, well, I've got to wrap up. How do we wrap up? I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Just thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. And we will see you again soon. And, yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Jess. Yeah, and for no now, worries, no worries. Thank see you soon. Thank see you. Ya. Bye then. Bye then. Bye. Bye. So there we have it. As you heard, Jess will be back on the show again soon. And that is something I'm very much looking forward to. Next week, I'm going to share how I won the Nano Rimo Challenge back in 2020, among other things regarding my writing journey. If you don't know what Nano Rimo is, come back next week and I'll tell you all about it. I would recommend it to every author. It's a writing muscle builder. Thank you to those who have given some very encouraging feedback regarding this show. For anyone who wants to connect with me, I can be reached by emailing stripbackthepages at gmail.com or via Twitter at stripbackpages. Have a great week, everyone, and see you next time. Until then, signing off. Mm-hmm.